Well, we're starting a new series today, First Things First. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. They'll bring you one from the back. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, and uh, you can get a hold of a Bible and turn there with me. I meant to mention that there's a memorial for Mabel's husband, Peter Rossi, tomorrow at 1030. So it'll be over in the uh, fireside room, but it's here tomorrow. So anybody need a Bible, just raise your hand. They will give one to you. So two weeks ago, Pastor Micah and I were talking. I think he'd been looking ahead to the scripture text because he was going to be preaching, which he did last Sunday. And he goes, are you going to practice what you preach? I said, what? He says, are you going to practice what you preach? And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you're going to be preaching on fasting, right? I said, yeah. He said, so you're going to practice any of it on your way to preaching about it? I said, well, are you going to practice what you preach? Because last week he was preaching on temptation and evil. And... Uh, in fact, Micah, I have a bag of marshmallows for you. If you can wait 15 minutes, I can give you two bags. So we all want to practice the good in our life, don't we? And last week, talking about avoiding evil or dealing with the frustrations that we have of not being able to get uh, past the, the spots where we trip up over and over, everybody deals with that. What we're dealing with today is really just for... Uh, believers, people who are wanting to be fully devoted followers of Christ and practice this discipline that's called fasting. So the question really uh, wanting to answer is what's first in your life? And uh, what is most important? What drives your life? What, what comes first? I mean, I know the doctor said the most important meal of the day is lunch. <laughs> no, no, because for years I didn't eat breakfast. So if you don't eat breakfast, then it's really not that important. You know, it's, it's not a big deal. And so it would be lunch. It's, but uh, I was just fooling you. God says, put first things first. Put first things first. What's first in your life? And Jesus began this portion of the Sermon on the Mount in ver uh, chapter 6, verse 1, where he said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. And kind of the bookend on the other end of the chapter, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. And in between those two, he sandwiches three disciplines, the discipline of giving, the discipline of praying, of which the Lord's Prayer is part of that, and the discipline of fasting. All three of these disciplines are encouraged on the fully devoted followers of Christ to be done in private, in secret, where only God can see you. So as not to be deluded from their original intent, which is to draw us closer into a relationship with God, our Heavenly Father. So today we're looking at the portion on fasting. Fasting is where we intentionally deny ourselves certain pleasures, usually food, um, that's the most common one, but people also have uh, found that if they deny themselves something else for a portion of time, maybe like your electronics. You ever thought of taking a Sabbath without electronics, never turning on, uh, leaving your, setting your phone as high? You how can you? I can't live without it. Well, you could 10 years ago, you know, or 15 years ago. So it's just an idea. In fact, a missionary, Jacqueline Parrish, who was trying some of this, felt God asking her to, and she wrote an article on it. She had very few possessions in life, but she sensed that God wanted her to go without her electronics for a period of time. And she said, I had allowed one of my lawful possessions to dominate my life. I slowly began to discover that fasting prevents the good gifts that we have from having us. 
It's one of God's ways of loosening our grip on lesser things so that we can better cling to him. So I'm talking about fasting. I'm not talking about starvation. I'm not talking about dieting. Fasting has been a method God has used to grow righteousness in his followers. And it's all throughout the scripture. So get your Bible. I want to look at some of these together. It's not just saying, well, if I deny myself food for a period of time, well, there I have done it and I can check off the box. It's not quite like that. Where does fasting first show up in the Bible? Well, it goes all the way back to the writings of Moses in Leviticus chapter 16. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read a few of the verses. But uh, here you've got all these ex-slaves that God has taken out of Egypt. They're out in the wilderness. And God says to Moses, have them wait here at Mount Sinai while I give you some guidance. I'm going to give you the law. And uh, so he does. And he says, here's how you get your heart right with God. And we're going to start with an annual day of atonement, a day of mourning and confession and getting right with God and offering sacrifices for our sin. And it's interesting in this that Moses doesn't use the word fasting. Look what he says. Leviticus 16, 29. It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do not do and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of whole solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourself. It's a statute forever. Now, to afflict yourself, he's meaning to fast. It's, it's uncomfortable, and it's necessary to grow in certain areas spiritually. Jesus even references fasting numerous times. And then besides Moses, you had David. There's three references in the Psalms. They're all from Psalms of David. Psalm 35, he says, But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with my head bowed on my chest. I thought he'd be talking about his children when his children got sick. So I went and looked it up, and he's talking about the verse right before that. He's talking about people who oppose him, his enemies, and he's praying for them. He's even willing to fast and to say, God, can you hear me? Please work in their lives. Psalm 69, he said, I wept and I humbled my soul with fasting. It became my reproach. Psalm 109, he says, my knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. You come to a time with, of, in the time of Ezra, it was a, a tenuous time. God's people, because of their sin, had been taken out of the land, and uh, they had been taken into captivity in Babylon. And after 70 years, God was going to allow some of them to start returning to the land, and Ezra was going to lead that return. And he says in chapter 8, he says, So I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. So part of fasting was to humble yourself and to ask for God's protection to all that we hold dear. In chapter 9 of Ezra, he says, And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments torn and my garment and my cloak torn. I fell on my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. He was dealing with an impossible situation. How do you unscramble the egg? The Jewish people had intermarried and had children with people who did not love the Lord. He's wondering, how do I unwind this thing? And so he prays to God in the next few verses, God, I'm so ashamed. Our sins are higher than our head. We're drowning in them is the picture. 
Ezra has a contrite spirit, and it's evidenced in his torn clothing and in getting on his knees and spreading out his hands to God and praying to God. His partner in ministry was named Nehemiah. It's the next book. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king in Babylon. Pretty significant position. He tasted everything that was going to be on the king's table because if it was poisoned, then the king would know because Nehemiah would die in his place. And he gets bad news from home. And it said, he, then he said, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for many days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love to those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So fasting here, besides including not eating, included praying and confessing his personal sin and then the, his, the corporate sin of, of uh, his whole family and the nation, really. And he had a contrite heart, and he's praying in tears. Toward the end of his book, he has all the people of Israel there confessing their sin, and it says, he said, now on the... 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled, this is Nehemiah 9, with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. If you're measuring the daylight hours, it's about 16 hours a day. A quarter of that would be for about four hours. They read the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy. And for another quarter of a day, they made confession and worshiped the Lord. So their fasting included humility and self-assessment and confession of personal sin and confession of corporate or systematic sin and reading of Scripture, not just a three-minute devotional, and worship. You come to the time of Esther, here the king was looking for a new wife. They searched over the whole land. She was the fairest of all the maidens, so she was chosen for her beauty. And she gets bad news that all of her people are going to be annihilated. She probably could have escaped herself, but she realized, I'm not just a pretty face. And her uncle says to her, you know, you might be given the job you were given for such a time as this. Stand up and be counted for the Lord. She realizes she could die. And the scripture says, in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So it includes great mourning, great demonstrations of, God, my heart is broken, I'm grieving. Please help us. And Esther asked people to fast, and then she spoke to the king, and she helped make the situation right. She did what she could. In Isaiah, he's a prophet and God sent him to the people of Israel, basically says to them, you're fasting, you're going to church, you're going through the motions, God's not listening to you. Why don't you do it in such a way that you would receive God's favor and God's blessing? They were misusing their fasting. Jesus is going to talk about this. We're going to look at it in just a minute. But here's what Isaiah said in chapter 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to the people their transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. 
So that's what God was saying to the prophet Isaiah. Here's what God was trying to tell the people. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. But they ask themselves, why have you fasted and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And here's God's answer. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all, the wor- all of your workers. So they get together for church. They sing all the pretty songs. They look the part. They dress the part. They have their friends at, at church, but then they go to their work on Monday and they oppress their workers. It didn't connect that my righteousness is supposed to be something that's carried all the way through my life, all the way through my week. He says, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this day a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? He's saying it's not enough just to fast and to pray. It has to change our hearts. It has to change our habits. He says, it's not this the fast that I choose. And here God says, here's what I want out of you when you're fasting. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? He's saying, practice your righteousness. I didn't time it like this, but in the bulletin today, did you see the little notice that we need people to help with the homeless right here in South Orange County? This is what it's talking about. I didn't ask you to bring them in your home or even to feed them. I just need some people to come alongside to help, help uh, some order when, when things like a mobile showers are offered, that somebody can stand at the door and to make sure that things are done decently and in order. But that's what he's saying here. Practice your righteousness. He said, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call on the Lord, and the Lord will answer. You'll cry, and he'll say, here I am. What's your prayer? Now, there's numerous other scriptures, but you, you get the picture here. Fasting and denial and, and um <clears throat> Prayer and genuine broken heart and repentance and humbling of self and the reading of scriptures and the the caring and the practical application into the world around us are important aspects of this. The idea is not just that we're not eating, but during fasting, the idea is that you're spending that time listening to God's voice and reviewing your own life and saying, what do I need to change to be more like Christ? I mean, Richard Foster, the author of the book Celebration of Discipline, said, fasting reveals the things that control us. Well, I wanted to share some of my own personal experience with fasting. My parents were missionaries in an organization that that was just the habit, uh, the culture, that the first Friday of every month, all the missionaries would fast and uh, take time to pray. And they weren't all in one spot. They were spread out all over the world, really. But they would take that first Friday of the month, and it was dedicated as a day of fasting and prayer. And so I would participate in it some. Then uh, when I was in college, there was a forced fast that I was part of. I didn't mean to be fasting, but I was leading a three-week mountaineering trip 
and that's pretty long up in the mountains. We'd hike over 200 miles during that time. And so it was about 10 students and three instructors. And just before we left on the trip, um, one of the girlfriends of one of the other instructors came to me and said, um, I'm going to meet at resupply. That's halfway through the trip, and it's the only time we cross a road. What, what, ta- what do you want me to bring? I think she's kidding. So I say, well, bring ice cream. Freeze some T-bone steaks and bring those. Bring salad. Bring Thousand Island. Bring grated cheese. And I go on down this list of some of my favorite foods. And she showed up with three freezer chests full of food. I have never carried a heavier pack. Okay? And we stuffed all this food in and we hiked 10 miles. We get there. The students now are tired and they need a little time off. So we're giving each of the students three days to be in an area about half the size of this room with a water bottle and a sleeping bag and a notebook. No food, but they're going to fast for three days and pray and listen to the Lord. And so while they're fasting, you know, the instructors needed to keep our strength up. So we're over here feasting. Right? And I actually talked about a verse that Paul has in Philippians chapter 4. You can go read it. He says, I have learned in all situations to be content. I know how to abound, and I know how to be abased. I know how to be full, and I know how to be hungry. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I'm sitting out fishing and feasting and laughing about this verse of they are learning the fasting, and we're learning the feasting. After three days... We gather all the students together, and we have a meal together, and then a talk where we hear about how tough it's been to go so hungry for so long. And um, so I'm trying to understand and be sympathetic to people who've been hungry, and um, even though we're stuffed. Well, the next four days were a time where the students would hike from point A to point B without the instructors because now they're supposed to know their mountaineering skills. So that afternoon, we divided the instructor's food from the student's food and put them up in trees and, where you can protect the food. But that night, in the middle of the night, a bear came to camp and only ate the instructor's food. So the next day, we headed out early, three instructors with empty packs and never hiked with a lighter one. And after the first day, we shared a six-ounce can of tuna that a bear had bit but hadn't been able to get open. The second day, we shared a can of chili that had had the same fate, had bear teeth marks in it. And the third day, all we had between the three of us, and we're hiking 15 miles a day, was a, can, a bag of corn nuts. One for you, one for you, one for me. One for you, one for you, one for me. And honestly, I was kind of mad about it. I said, God, this isn't fair. I'm working hard out here. I need food. And I could hear him say, remember that verse that Paul said he learned how to do both? <laughs> You learned the first half really well. Now you're learning the second half. How are you doing? Students would come walking along. They'd sit down next to us on the path. They think we've already eaten, so they'd break their lunch out. They'd never offer any. You know, they're eating right in front of you. And you... So God had something in mind. <clears throat> the third fasting experience was getting ready for this sermon. You know, Micah wanted to know if I was going to practice what I preached, so I said yes. So I tried it for half an hour, and... I did pretty well <laughs> and gradually extended that during, during my preparation time. Got to a longer fast. I can't tell you about it because I don't want to, you know, lose the reward. But um, uh, we did get to do some fasting and uh, uh, 
working through it to say, God, this is a discipline that you have used. So I don't want to, I'm not just making fun of it. It's important. Here's what Jesus said. It's in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, Jesus says when you fast, he doesn't say if you fast. He's assuming that his followers are going to have times where things are tough or their lives have gotten a little off track or they've realized I'm just going through the motions or I need a closer connection with, with God or I need something to happen in my life and they would set aside food so they have more intentionality in their prayer. They're sensing the suffering in their own body and they would be able to, uh, to be more intentional in saying I'm listening for the voice of God. Jesus' disciples, of course, were challenged, and, and this is in the notes if you're in one of our growth groups that's studying it, but all, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three have people who come to the disciples and say, how come you don't fast? Like the rest of us religious people. And Jesus said to him, when the bridegroom is present, you don't fast. When you're at the wedding, you got the bride and the groom and you're celebrating, you might have fasted and, and, and tried to get down a few pounds so you'd look so good in your, in your outfit for the wedding, but at the wedding, you're going to celebrate. And he says, as long as the uh, bridegroom is with them, they're not going to fast. But when the bridegroom is gone, then they will fast. So how can fasting be abused? Isaiah already told us one, and that is to fast, to go through all this, uh, the motions of looking religious, but not changing from, uh, from your sin or your wicked ways or how you treat people unjustly. Jesus gives us a second way of how fasting can be abused. Fasting to receive the praise of people. He calls those hypocrites. He says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their face that their fasting may be seen by others. I tell you, they have received their reward. A hypocrite is somebody who's trying to look like somebody else. They're trying to look the part even if they can't be the part. Somebody who is trying to look like something they're not. Fasting is supposed to draw us closer to God. It's supposed to impress God with our un, undivided love and loyalty to, and sincerity and our contrite heart and our passion for him. So a hypocrite wants people to think, whoa, that person is really spiritual. Look at they're doing something I couldn't do. It's beat them up. Look at their face. Look at their clothes. Look how sad they look. They're wanting to look the part of being really spiritual and in tune with God. But they aren't really seeking the praise of God anymore. They're seeking the praise of the people who noticed them. And Jesus says, that is the reward. God's not listening. These people have dressed and they look in such a way that they've deprived themselves so they'll receive the from other people. We run the same kind of danger, don't we? In fact, we're in a period of time that in some churches they call it Lent. Lent, that's the 40 days uh, before Easter. Generally starts on Ash Wednesday is near the beginning when people will go to church, they'll pray, and they'll put some ashes on their forehead. And it's to symbolize ashes to ashes, dust to dust, or that people are in deep grief or mourning over their sin. So do you think it's a danger that people could actually go and get ashes put on their head without really being in deep grief, without really being in repentance? Yeah, I do. In fact, I had a Catholic friend in the Air Force who said, so what are you giving up for Lent? 
said, I'm supposed to give something up for Lent? She said, yeah. She said, this is a time of prepare, looking at your heart and realizing what Jesus sacrificed and, and to give something up. She said, I'm giving up chocolate. And I said, well, I guess I'm going to give up vacuuming and dishes. <laughs> but then that sounded kind of hypocritical, you know. Um, so hypocrites want to be seen by people. They want to impress other people. But the fully devoted follower of Jesus wants to be seen by God. They want to impress God. They want their heart to really be true and pure before God, not just look the part, but to have God be pleased, to hunger and thirst after righteousness. I mean, when I, when I, get, when I fast, I get hungry. And the idea is that I use my physical hunger to help me realize that what I really, really hunger for in my life is God and a pure, true relationship with God to hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus said. I mean, Jesus is the bread of life so he can feed our bodies and our souls. Why would we fill our tummies with Twinkies when we could be filled with the bread of life that truly satisfies. Why be filled with spiritual junk food when God wants to give us a banquet that will truly satisfy? So how do we put the first things first? Jesus said, when you fast, anoint your face or anoint your head, wash your face. In other words, do your usual preparations to meet the day so that people don't look at you and go, wow, something's wrong, something's different. You must be spiritual today. said, do, get yourself ready in such a way that your fasting isn't seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That's the proper use of fasting. Fasting for the Father's reward. Fasting so that God says, Ooh, look at her. Look at him. They truly love me with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That one is mine. I'm really pleased with him or with her. You know, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, it starts with three requests, three longings of the human heart that Jesus capsulized in saying, our Father, holy is your name, that we would lift up the name of God. He says, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wouldn't that be a great reward for our fasting? We fast out of a deep desire for our God's name to be known and honored and revered worldwide because he's righteous. And we fast for his kingdom, his reign, and his rule to be fully functioning in our world today so that people actually think, what does Jesus think? What does Jesus say? How do I follow God's word as I order my life? And we fast for his will be done here on earth just like it is in heaven, which, by the way, they're already singing. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. Hallelujah. Our God reigns. And we fast so that when our God sees his son or his daughter delighting in him and drawing close to him, he's pleased and he says, ah, that's my boy, that's my girl. So you might try it, but, but don't tell me about it. <laughs> you know, often people wait until they're desperate, until the situation looks hopeless and there's nowhere else to turn. I mean, people like Isaiah or Ezra or David, then they cry out to God for help. Well, we're in desperate times right now. And we need God as much as ever. We need God's protection, and we need his guidance, and we need his blessing. I mean, it's time to set aside some of our pleasures and some of our comforts and exercise our spiritual muscles. I'm inviting you, try a fasting period this week. 
I was reading a book this week. Actually, Cindy was reading it, and so she started reading out. I said, what you read? And she started reading out loud, and this part really hit home. It's by an author named Sammy Tippett, T-I-P-P-I-T, if you want to Google him. But he, the, the part that, he, that stood out to me is he said, repenters must repent. Repenters must repent. Here's what he said. Quote, I'm often asked if there's any hope for North America and Western Europe. Prognosticators have declared that we are living in a post-Christian era. Can anything be done to halt the moral decay? Moral darkness has covered society and the church seems to be powerless in these troublesome times in which we are living. I've walked in some of the darkest places on this planet and I've seen the light of the truth of God's word shatter and dispel the darkness. But it all begins with God's people. In the early 1970s, a pastor began to call for repentance in the Christian community of Oradia, Romania. That nation was engulfed in the darkness under an evil dictator. It was a bleak hour in the history of Romania. It's interesting to note that evangelical Christians in Romania were called repenters. When a person came to personal faith in Christ, there was such a dramatic change in his life that the person was qualified, identified as one who had repented. The pastor in Aradia began to teach that repenters must repent. The sins of society had slowly been creeping into the church. The church starts to look like the world. Therefore, believers in the church were encouraged to unite in prayer and in repentance, and they did. And they fasted and prayed. And within six months, following the church entering into a covenant of repentance, the Second Baptist Church of Aradia baptized 200 people in a six-month period. It was dangerous in those days to be publicly baptized, and a believer could go to prison or lose his job or educational opportunities for being publicly identified with Christ and his people. But the church began to immediately experience rapid growth. Today, the church in Aradia is the largest evangelical church on the continent of Europe. It all began when the repenters began to repent. That's what we need to be about. Repenters must repent. The Bible says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin. I'll heal their land. Sometimes we repenters, we think, there's, there's nothing I could do. Well, we, you know, we wonder, I'm just so small. I'm just one person. We can fast. We can pray. We can repent. We can get right with God. We can make our petitions known to him. He listens to those kinds of people, and he can act. See, God loves you. God wants to be first in your life, and he, he doesn't want to share you with anything or anybody. He wants you to love him back with all your heart, with all your affections. He doesn't want you to just look the part. He knows when you're faking it and you're looking for the praise of people rather than of God. Don't do that anymore. And he knows when your love is partial or distracted, shared with some other part-time love. You ever known that you're driving next to somebody who's texting at the same time? You know what I'm saying? They're distracted. God knows when you're genuine. He sees you when you're in secret. So what's first in your life? What's most important? It's not about the food. Food's not first. Put Jesus first. First in your life. First in your thoughts. First in your affections. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, we pause before you. And this message is for us. Because we run the same dangers. 
I know I do, publicly worship, publicly praying. And yet if our hearts are not aligned with you, then we're the hypocrites that Jesus was talking about. And I pray that you'll get a hold of us today of what we need to change, what we need to do, how we become more like you. How our hearts are purified before you. May we set aside food or whatever it would need to strip it out of our life so that we can have you completely. May we be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Amen.